Uh, it seems a shame to who, who fade out our fuzzy intro theme there because we're bopping around the studio here on 2XX and the Fuzzy Logic Science Show with my friend Phil Hall from the National Dinosaur Museum. Good morning, Phil. Now, today's program is brought to you by ghouls, ghosts, vampires, demons, and a werewolf. <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of seems appropriate given the zombie up. Apocalypse has just taken over the United States. It's kind and, of scary. <laughs> uh, yes, a scary development. So today's theme is things mythical, things large, things scary. And fortunately, a lot of them don't exist, but sadly, some of them do. In fact, in fact, we're going to kick off with a story about one of those because it's a thing called a holy dooly something or other. It's, it's, you've got to keep in mind how, like, if you see something as surprising, you go, holy dooly. So it's holy doolier. Uh, holy dooly. Now, it's a big-ass thing. Does it have sharp teeth? What is it exactly? It's very sharp teeth. It's called a hypercarnivore. This thing would have been purely carnivorous. It's basically a giant black bear-sized um, uh, Tasmanian devil that they found up in Queensland. And uh, this would have been one of the top predators during the Ice Age. Uh, well, Tasmanian devil that carries a reputation with it, obviously. <laughs> I think voracious eater. Voracious eater and also a very powerful bite. It's For its size, it's got the most powerful bite of any mammal. So, um, yeah, these things size that up and you're dealing with a very dangerous creature. How, how big? Uh, so about the black bear size. So, you know, if you think maybe six feet or four or five feet long and maybe weighing around 100 kilos. So, so, so about the size maybe of a, a black bear or something like that? Yeah, so... Sizable, sizable creature that would have been roaming around eating giant kangaroos and things with with attitude. Now, what? How, how old is this uh, specimen? So, uh, uh, from in, in Australia, we don't actually call the Ice Age the Ice Age because there was no ice. Um, we call call it the Big Dry because during the Ice Age in the Southern Hemisphere, um, there was no ice. It basically just dried the continents out. So, I oh, said so the ice sheets sucked the water out of the climate. Yep, and right, because okay. we're not close to Antarctica, yep. the ice couldn't grow out and cover these continents. We're in the north Northern Hemisphere. All those continents in the north, they're right next to the North Pole. So as the ice started to grow and radiate from the North Pole as it got colder, it didn't have far to go. And once it got on the land, it covered the land in the giant sheets of ice, and they were the glaciers. Whereas Australia isn't anywhere near Antarctica anymore. So, And the, if you watch the Sydney to Hobart yacht race, the, the oceans down there are pretty wild, and there's huge waves. So even though the ice was growing at the South Pole, none of the southern continents are close enough really so that the ice couldn't radiate radiate out and then get onto these mm -hmm, continents mm -hmm. so as as the ice was growing in the north and on the pole both poles just dried the continent out you know ocean levels shrank rainfall stopped and yeah australia went from basically a giant dane tree rainforest into the arid environment we know today Ah, oh, arid so largely desert and um other other big um, herbivores and stuff wandering around at the same time. Uh, presumably, a large carnivore means uh, large things large to herbivore. eat. Yeah, and we had giant. We had wombats. The biggest marsupial ever was a, a wombat the size of a hippopotamus called Diprotodon. And uh, there was a giant kangaroo, much bigger than the red kangaroo today, and it was called Procoptodon. And when you look at their teeth, their teeth were really... Sh they had very sharp edges. And when you have a very sharp edge, that suggests that they're eating leaves because leaves are quite soft whereas animals that eat grass um, have very big, robust teeth because oh, grass is really, it's like sandpaper. Oh, gr grinding, grinding versus, versus cutting teeth, is yep. that what you're getting at? Yep, and so as, yeah. as the Ice Age continued and Australia dried out, all these giant, lush forests that were covering the continent just disappeared and um, it became more of an arid grassland kind of environment, which these giant herbivores had not evolved to 
survive in. So their numbers started to fall, and all the giant carnivores that were, you know, eating the giant herbivores, their numbers started to fall as well. So is this sort of like uh, modern day savanna Africa? Is kind that of, roughly like yeah, that? or even yeah. modern Australia. You know, like Australia has been changed quite a bit since Aborigines arrived because they did a lot of. Uh, slash burning and things but roughly what you see in australia today is without all the farms is um what you would have had then like big vast grasslands and very arid kind of spinifex grasslands and things like that which these giant herbivores that used to live in australia they weren't adapted to they just couldn't survive ah now the the, the name holy dooley you say the, the the body that names animals is fairly conservative about what they accept is that right yeah australia because you know australians we've got a larrikin sense of humor um we keep finding we keep finding things and we'll give it a funny name and send it off to this this uh organization and they'll, they'll often reject the funny name uh sometimes they get it gets through like we used to have a giant python a, a fossil python and it was called monty pythonoides <laughs> but um and that survived for quite a while but recently um we've realized it's a actually a the exact same snake as an older discovered snake, and so that name subsided. Oh, that, that's that name. reclassification. Yeah, yeah, but we had um we had a giant a platypus that we try to call um, hot cross bunadon because <laughs> its teeth look like little hot cross buns. Um, mammals are known for for their teeth, so if you find a tooth, you can generally work out what sort of mammal you're looking at because we have very distinct teeth. And uh, there's one one little mammal jaw with teeth that are so bizarre, so strange, that nobody can actually associate it with anything. So it's called thingodonta, which means something tooth. And we don't know what it is. but you know, so Donta as in tooth. tooth. Yeah, so thingodonta. <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of I like that in a way because, uh, you know, the perception of science might be that everything's all pinned down, that it's known, it's precise. and But, but a lot of it is just, sort of, well, maybe kind of sort of if... And it, also, that's what science is. Science is never a hard light, hard answer. It's always, this is the best answer we've got at the time, and hopefully in the future we'll find something else or we'll find new information and that will change the way we're looking at this thing. Yes. And that happens a lot with paleontology. So, Well, to, to me, science is as much accepting that you can be wrong at any given point. Your whole life's work might prove to be down the wrong track and then um, you know that's just too bad, but... Um, we're going to talk about the science, the philosophy of science, given what's been going on in the United States recently. And, Very uh, recently. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, and, and mythical creatures taking over the world, lumbering across this, the landscape, climbing up skyscrapers and knocking helicopters out of the sky. Did, but, did uh, you just say Trump is like King Kong? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, we, 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 we might say that. We might say that. But uh, let, let, let's go back to our theme, uh, first, the, 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 the holy dooly animal. And uh, there's lots of other strange things that have been discovered. So a giant platypus. Yeah, and, uh, and a giant echidna. So people aren't aware that there's two species of echidna alive today. There's the Australian echidna, which is the lovely little thing we see in a five cent piece. But there is a giant echidna still alive today. It only lives in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. It's one of the rarest of the big animals. It's quite an amazing thing. It's almost a sheep-sized echidna. It's called a long-beaked echidna because its, its snout is much longer than our echidnas. Our and we do have fossils of those ones in Australia. And what's quite amazing is just very recently, um, we've been uh, over in uh, England, they've been searching through an explorer that was sent out here in 1900 by the British Museum to walk around and collect things for their natural history exhibits. Mm. And they've been just cataloguing his discoveries over the last two years, and they discovered a skin, a giant echidna skin from Western Australia. 
So they are or were still alive in Australia up until about 100 years ago. And what's quite amazing is recently uh, we've gone out and talked to the Aborigines that live in that area and they keep talk they, they do know what we're talking about. Like when we talk about this giant echidna, they, they call it the other one. <sighs> and a lot of the people saying, yes, no, I haven't seen one for a while, but my grandmother used to talk about the other echidna. And there was a giant echidna that was up until maybe just 100 years ago, maybe even shorter. They might still be there because it's a very remote area. These giant echidnas that are still wandering that, around Australia. That, that, uh, interesting that you bring Aboriginal cult, culture into this. And it makes a lot of sense that they would be able to um, retain knowledge like this through the, the, the oral tradition because that's how they learned, that's how they survived in this harsh Australian landscape. And just quickly segue on to that point is that uh, there was an, an announcement recently, like only a few weeks ago, that they'd found ancient um, evidence of Aborigines in the northern Flinders Ranges dating back to, and I think it was 51,000 years ago. And that sort of doesn't surprise me. I think, I mean, there's strong evidence for 40,000 years, 50,000 years. We might get as far as 60,000, maybe. 60,000 is often talked about as a, a soft number. That's, as a soft number. probably were here, but we're not... Is, Extremely hard yeah, to prove. We're, 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 there's a lot of loose links suggesting that. Like, yeah. we don't have any hard evidence that they were, but it, they probably were. Now, now, I also want to segue while we're talking about Aboriginal culture of, of a book that's really changed my thinking about how civilizations work, and that's Jared Diamond's book, Guns, Germs and Steel. And if you're nodding, Phil, I take it you, you, you've read it? Mind it more like it. You go. There's a lot of great information in there, so whenever you need something, you can go into that book and find yeah. something about it. It's it's really important book because now we talk about if you're uninformed, you might say Aboriginal culture or the Aboriginal people are primitive. And I'm using, I'm, we're doing the finger thing in there. Yeah. What keep it you the radio? Um, natives, you know, and so they were anything but unsophisticated. Now, if you took you or I or anybody or any one of you who were listening and plonked us in a paddock out here in Australia, your survival chances would be measured in. Days, maybe two weeks. You might, you know, I mean, assuming you couldn't find a supermarket. Yeah. And, and so just think of what it takes to live in this landscape. It is a really, really difficult thing. And the fact that they didn't develop civilization, I'm doing the finger thing again, uh, it's got nothing to do with how smart they were because they were extremely smart. But you need the conjunction of a whole bunch of things to come together to make it viable or make a civilization possible. Do you want to pick me up on some of those points? Yeah, no, uh, what I was going to say is, especially in science and very specifically in paleontology, we do not use the word primitive because it has the wrong connotation for a lot of things. It means, you know, something less than, whereas um, they use the term basal. Because we're, you know, especially in paleontology, we're always dealing with ancestral forms and fossils of things that might be alive today or might be an ancestor or a descendant of something alive today. So we don't use primitive because it's the wrong connotation. We use the word basal, and that just means it's at, you know, an older form. Uh, and a great example of that is the platypus. You know, you could say the platypus is a primitive mammal because it still has a lot of reptilian features. It shows our reptilian ancestry because it lays eggs, it's venomous. Um, it's actually cold-blooded. It's a lot more cold-blooded than most mammals are. Its DNA shows a lot of reptilian DNA still in it, um, even the way it produces milk. You know, the only thing that makes a mammal a mammal is the production of milk, mammal mammary gland. Um, 
platypuses, you know, monotremes don't even do it like the rest of us mammals do. They, they sweat milk through their skin. They kind of bleed milk through a patch in their skin. And then the baby platypus, and do you know what a baby platypus is called? Uh, Cute, no. Cutest name in the world. A puggle. <laughs> the puggle licks the milk off the skin. But because they produce milk, they are considered a mammal, whereas almost everything about them is reptilian. Even the way they stand, reptiles have a pillar stance. We stand with a very straight leg. Reptiles have a splayed stance where their legs are kind of stuck out to the side. Um, and that's the platypus has a splayed stance. It's, even the way it stands is reptilian, but it produces milk. So that's the only thing that makes it a, a mammal. So it's at the base of the mammal tree. But you wouldn't call a platypus a primitive animal because they're highly advanced creatures. You know, they're very well adapted to their environment. They've got a lot of amazing things like, uh, yeah. you know, the, their, their bill that they can, you know, detect cr creatures in the water even that when their eyes are closed and things. They're a very advanced animal. But so you can't call them a primitive animal. You and, call them and, a basal animal. And that goes to the theme that we've discussed a few times on Fuzzy Logic Phil, and that is that uh, you might view evolution as being um, advancement, inverted commas again, yeah. towards a cause, towards an end goal, and that we are the most highly evolved species on the planet and so on. And it, it suggests, which is very wrong, that we, we are the target, we are the goal in some way, and that each succession of um, evolution of a species is, is an advancement or it's going forward. Well, all it is is just adapting to the environment in some way. Isn't that right? Mostly, except for us. We're the only animal that adapts our environment to us. We don't adapt to the environment. We adapt an environment to us. You live in a cold place, then you build a, a house that is very well insulated, and then you build a heater. And then if it's, you know, if it's really hot during winter, uh, summer, then you build an air conditioner. You're not really adapting to the environment. You're, you're building an environment that... You're adapting the environment to yourself by building your own little micro-environment, and that's houses and things like that. So, yeah, everything up until us, we, 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 and as, as we can see with climate change, we're, we're very good at changing the planet. Yes. Maybe not to the best, but we do it. Well, that, that, that's, that's a, vexed, a vexed question. But I want to quickly go back to um, what you need to kick off a civilization, and, and what I took away from Jared Diamond's book was not just... This, well, the main message was about how we are supposedly more sophisticated, smarter because we're Western people. We're sitting here in a studio with a concrete building with glass tower and all sorts of technology around us. But you need a whole bunch of things to come together, and one of them is um, uh, crops, uh, uh, enough, a plant variety that you can crop. There's almost no plant in Australia that is suitable for cropping on any scale that was here before we arrived. Some grasses, you could sort of collect them on a small scale, yams. Well, one of the condoms. most beneficial ones, I think, is something that we got rid of, which was the salt bush. Um, like it was attacked because they, they was seen as no value to it. Mm. But we've recently discovered that the salt bush, when you feed it to cattle, they, they love it and it creates some of the best meat in the world. Like it's an actually very beneficial thing if you're grazing animals. And we, we destroyed it because, you know, 100 years ago, nobody saw any value in the salt bush at all. And it, it's perfectly adapted to in this environment because it is from this environment. Ah, well, there you go. And I'm just going to jump forward to a couple of weeks' time because I've got some fly experts coming on to the program. Really looking forward to that. As in insect or fishing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, things you don't normally swat, right, but uh, one from CSIRO. But the other one is from a Canberra company, a startup, and she's looking at ways to produce stock feed, as I understand it, from flies. Oh, really? Yeah. And so how are we going to produce... I might have that wrong, but well, I'm going to looking forward to meeting her in a couple of weeks. 
fascinating stuff. But like you said, uh, th- that's an opportunity. But the, well, well, that carnivorous feeding of cattle, that is kind of where mad cow disease came from um, because it was kind of um, India was collecting all – because uh, India, they put their dead relatives in the Ganges and they all float away. And at the bottom of the Ganges, they're collecting everything that's coming down that river and they're crushing it up into meal and feeding it to cattle. And some of that is human remains. And that's, uh, there's a strong suggestion that's where okay, mad that, cow disease got that, into that That's cattle. a really good point. And I'm almost certainly misrepresenting the story here because I haven't actually spoken to her oh, yet. Yeah, so. <laughs> so, but that, that's a good question. And what exactly we do with the fly protein... Uh, I look forward to finding out. Tune into Fuzzy Logic in a couple of weeks' time, and we'll we'll, we'll pick up on that one. Always asking the valid questions, the, the <laughs> necessary questions. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. As long as the question reveals something of interest, uh, you never know where it's going to go. Um, but just but back to the the, the civilization thing. Another thing that Australia lacks is uh, an animal that you can use for power. We don't have the equivalent of a donkey or horse or a cow. Even well, we've got buffalo but they were brought in and camels same thing Uh, camels were brought in so there's no animal power to so you don't have something to crop and if you did have something to crop you didn't have something to to plow a large field and when you got your produce how are you going to get it to where you need it it's hard to imagine a a plow being pulled by a kangaroo (laughs) (laughs) that's it's it's going to end up more like you know braille or something in the ground and and there have been uh attempts to crop australian animals so uh, emu farming for example it hasn't been all that successful well we're having a fascinating conversation always enjoy your company phil Horf from the national dinosaur museum here on fuzzy logic i'm going to play a track and this one if i've got the right on fuzzy logic there's me rod and phil hall from the national dinosaur museum looking slightly glum in the current political <laughs> developments uh we, we can talk a little bit more about that uh it's a, it's <laughs> a bit unnerving <laughs> yes yes just, um Anyway, we were before the song break. We were talking about civilization and uh, the things that you need. So you need the the plant varieties, you need the animal power, but you also need the access to to the metals and the minerals and stuff. Now Australia has lots of that, but it's all buried deeply, and it's not something you can get hold of that easily. And a lot of it needs processing as well. So and it's not like you can just pick it up and make an axe out of it. You have to have some sort of technology to get there. That's right. So according to Jared Diamond, you would say that civilization is that accidental conjunction of a bunch of um, factors that you need. Uh, otherwise, it just won't, it won't grow. Now, I think the only place in Australia where you've got the slightest hint of it, of a settled uh, um, community of any sort, is in East Gippsland, where there's some buildings, possibly, I think, that are, were built down there, and the eel farms that the Aboriginal people uh, built. Yeah, and when it comes to these sorts of things, you have to be so careful because there's a lot of pseudoscience out there as well of a lot of people seeing, you know, just a natural rock formation or something and thinking they can see like a pyramid or some ancient... uh, A face on Mars or whatever, yes. Yeah, so there are all those quirky little books out there of alternate histories of, you know, oh, no, the Chinese were here because we found this piece of wood. (laughs) It's a piece of wood. (laughs) It's a skinny bit of evidence and a lot of big... Conclusions. I think it's a little bit stronger than that in this case. I don't oh, know. No, that, this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know a lot about it, but uh, since since we're talking original themes and 
well, we were open a show with monsters, ghouls, vampires, werewolves. Uh, Phil, you're saying that science is starting to reveal some ideas about where some of these concepts come, where some of these mythical things... Uh, well, a good one yeah. is to start with the Aborigines, because like we were previously talking about like the giant wombat that lived in Australia and all these giant kangaroos and things that lived here. And we do have evidence from the aborigines that they were here at the same time we find cave paintings of these creatures um, so we do know that they were sharing this environment with them maybe not up until recently but definitely over say perhaps sixty thousand years they would have seen a lot of these species and they were you know they were painting what they saw but aborigines a lot of their history is told by story they don't have a they don't have a written language as such so they tell stories and so when white guys europeans showed up and the Aborigines would tell them these stories about these fantastic creatures. There's no evidence of those creatures around, so we just mark it up as a mythological creature. But for the Aborigines, they were possibly not a mythological creature. They were actually talking, uh, they were retelling a story that has been retold for thousands of generations about a creature that did used to live there. So, you know, and they'd be warning stories like, don't go near the waterhole because there's a bunyip down there. And well, the bunyip's a dangerous animal. It, it makes sense when you think their survival depended on a really good understanding of things. And I remember going to the, the a music festival and there was a welcome to country uh, and they did a, a dance. And in the dance, they described the bees, the new bees that arrived. And these bees had stings. And so the dance was t where they were telling each other about watch out for these bees. You can get the honey, but they sting. Yep. And, and that's exactly how they how they told their warning stories. You know, it's like the, the old slip slop slap ad. In, in a way, you could say that's a that's that's a story that's being told to kids. You know, by a cartoon peng, uh, pelican or whatever it was, or a seagull. You know, this is what you have to do when you go in the sun. And, and another example that uh, I, I know of is uh, a weather prediction. Now, I, I understand that in parts of Australia, their, their culture would say, "Oh, when you see the cockatoos flying, this plant flowering, and all these things." they were really observant about what was going on around them. And they would say, we're heading for a wet season or something like that. I don't know much of detail, but that's the sort of thing. And now, as you're saying, Phil, uh, that science is sort of catching up with that and they're going, actually, there was, there's a lot in, in, in that, in what they, what they said. Yeah, so like, for instance, Aborigines, they had the story of the rainbow serpent. And we now know there was a very large snake that lived in Australia, this giant python that would have been hanging around the waterholes and things and some sunning themselves in the sun. And a lot of the Australian snakes are quite beautifully coloured. So perhaps that was literally based on a real snake that they were seeing. But as I said, the bunyip is a good one because the bunyip was most likely the diprotodon, the giant wombat. Whereas, you know, we love telling tourists, you know, about drop bears, you know, <laughs> when you go into the trees, watch out for the drop bears. But Australia did used to have a giant marsupial carnivore about the size of a leopard called Thylacoleo. And the way it's built, it does look like it could possibly climb trees and jump out of trees onto their prey. So, again, Europeans are showing up. The Aborigines are saying, oh, don't go under those trees. There's drop bears. They'll fall on your head. <laughs> you know, and back then they hadn't invented Vegemite, so you couldn't get rid of them. And we never saw any evidence of those creatures, so we just marked it up as mythology. So those Thylacoleo, now they were found in a cave on the Nullarbor, is that right? Yeah, yeah, and, and even here in Wellington Caves. And there was one found, I believe... Um, uh, nearby at one of the wee jasper caves and yeah i've been trying to find where that that the, the, there's a skull and i've been trying to find out where that skull's been taken to but unfortunately a lot of damming burrenjuk dam and things like that have 
have filled in a lot of the old caves that used to be explored. So it could be one of those caves that isn't accessible anymore. But yeah, they're, they're found everywhere. Yeah, it's quite amazing stuff. And this thing um, I'm picturing, I might be confusing it with a saber-toothed tiger. I'm thinking of these huge rabbit-like front teeth. Yeah, huge rabbit-like front teeth, but more importantly, it's the side tooth. So carnivores like so cats and dogs felids and canids they're carnivores and carnivores have a side tooth that's called a carnassial so the carnival carnassial and it's the big shearing tooth so if you ever watch lions or your dog chewing on a bone they don't chew like us front on they kind of cock their heads to the side and chew with their side molars and they're the giant shearing teeth that cut away the meat so thylacoleo on its side had one giant uh, you know, almost the size of a stapler, <laughs> this <laughs> giant tooth that they would have used. And it's a different sort of tooth that they've adapted to the same sort of environment. So, yeah, they had these massive teeth and a very powerful bite. So the, the, the fr- I'm guessing that the front tooth or teeth are the killing ones. They, they drop... Possibly right? or possibly, well, definitely killing, but how they killed, either like... By puncturing. Puncturing or, or, or crushing the windpipe. So, so closing the windpipe like a grip so that no air could pass through, and that's a lot why a lot of cats and things kill is by they actually strangle their prey. Ah, yeah, uh, yeah. You don't you don't want to meet those in a bad mood. No. Uh, <laughs> now, other mythical creatures, Phil. Yeah. So if we take if we expound on that, you know, um, a lot of ancient mytholo- mythological creatures that for years we've considered to have no basis are starting to show out that they could actually be based on real things. Um, so the Greeks are, you know, the Greeks are fantastic storytellers and they were getting around everywhere and they've got a lot of mythic- mythological creatures in their tales. And the, one of the great ones from the ancient Greeks is the Cyclops, which is a giant human with one eye. In the and, forehead, on the forehead. Yeah, and yeah. The, the Cyclops lived on a very specific island in the Mediterranean near yeah. Crete, which I can never remember the name of. But when we go to that island, we do actually find big skulls with a huge orb or a huge hole right <clears throat> in the front of their head, and they're dwarf elephants and dwarf mammoths. So if you've never seen an elephant and you don't know that out of this hole isn't an eye, it's actually the trunk... Being a, a Greek storyteller who's had a bit too much Greek wine, <laughs> going back to his mates with this skull, going, "Look what I killed! This giant thing!" and it, and you can actually make a giant a mammoth skull into a human form. They do actually look like really weird humans when you lay them out that way with this giant single. So it's it's a bit of evidence and a bit of imagination. Now you yep. mentioned the rainbow serpent, right? So the river itself is like a serpent, isn't it? So you know, as it arcs its way across the countryside, that, that you could think of that as being a giant snake. Absolutely, and for you know, and that, that's that's what I'm talking about. That's one way we did interpret it for a long time until we actually found the fossils of this giant snake that would have been but, around but here. It's not necessarily one or the other. You get the nice conjunction yeah. of the metaphor and the actual thing absolutely and yeah. and they probably you know we know that things are often associated with what they found so egypt it was all about the nile and the crocodile yeah so if this snake was near that that river of course they'd associate this snaking river with this giant snake getting around so now overlaying these ideas is is a human meaning so you get the object itself and the and the, the facts the factual part of it and then you get how we interpret and how we view it and what it means to us so the cyclops then is not just an animal supposedly with a third eye on the forehead you know giant person uh, but then we overlay it with, um, you know, it, it has this character and it's menacing and it's dangerous. And that's often something that's, that's, that's applied to this. Do you agree with that? Yeah, because that's one of, our, one of our great strengths as a species is our imagination. We, we don't just see it what is, we can see it what might be. 
And so if you see something like that, you know, and then, for instance, you need to tell a tale about why you wouldn't go to that waterhole or go to that thing, and you know that some creature was found there that might might have been dangerous, of course you would tie that in somehow. So our imagination is one of, you know, that's how we can invent things because we're always trying... Imagination, but also lessons. We're, we're telling each other stories. So a lot of Aboriginal culture, and, and I, I, I hate to be so re- ignorant about Aboriginal culture, but uh, if we had someone who could put this more with more authority, but um, I, I think a lot of it is about saying, it's passing on lessons. So, you know, here's the revenge of the God of something like that. You can get, flesh this out with an example, maybe Phil... But the, but the underlying message there is you don't overexploit this environment. There's there's sort of a logic behind it as well as just it being a good yarn. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and the the very basic logic is our memory. We remember stories better than we remember dry facts. Yes. So if you're if you're told a bunch of information, you may only retain a little bit of that ima- imagination because after a while you might get bored or you just lose contact uh, contact with the information given to you but a story has a has a central theme and has a line and of emotional content yeah and you can you can much easily um, it's much easier for us to remember a story or a joke you know how many bad jokes do you remember compared to who who discovered you know falkland islands in 1812 well, like who, who cares that? but then yeah. if you said and I'm, I'm knowing your your love of uh, seafaring stories, but you could probably say that our oh, sailor so and so was looking for the something or other, and then he he stumbled across the Falklands and so on, and then it becomes a narrative. And like you say, well, the classic is Captain Cook, yeah. you know, or or even um, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. I'm not even American, and I know that. <laughs> So, like little, just little things like that, we, we're very good at remembering. Well, another example would be music. So, what's the fourth note on the third bar of the second movement of Beethoven's Fifth Piano Concerto? Ah, you could ask top-flight musician; they wouldn't know. But you say, "Can you play the fourth movement of the third bar?" And they would go, "Yeah, no worries. Here it comes." A, a great, a great example of that is um, uh, uh, I once went to Laos. And um, the gentleman I was visiting there asked me to bring over a bunch of CDs, like um, the best of the 60s and the best of the 50s and things. You know, he was a bit of an older gentleman. Um, so he wanted all these music tracks that he just wasn't being able to access in, in Laos. So we got there, and he, he, he just immediately put them on, loving it. He was singing every song. He knew everything. And all his Loatian friends, they, they were just like, how are there this many songs in the world? How do you know all these songs? Because Laos, you know, all, there's not that many songs in the Laotian language, so they know a few songs. But think of the catalogue of, of the last hundred years of songs that we're aware of in our heads. And he knew so much, and it was just mind-blowing to these Laotians that all these songs, A, existed, and B, he knew every word and hadn't heard them in 20 years. Oh, what, 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 a great, what a great introduction to our next track here on Fuzzy Logic Phil Hall from the National Dinosaur Museum, Fuzzy Logic, and here's a random piece of music for your enjoyment.
club there for you uh come a chameleon uh that's quite an old song but quite a nice melody to it here on and, fuzzy logic and we've just been talking about culture so that the culture club that's right you can segue anything you like and we often do <laughs> and we often and we often do and now but, the next one <laughs> <laughs> well just 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 watch this for a uh, a segue uh well, we were talking about mythical creatures and uh, zombies, and we didn't really talk about zombies much, but uh, we want to go on to the U.S. election, which is very... Uh, talking about zombies. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's got a bit of an apop- apocalyptic flavour to it, and um, those of us who believe... Well, Phil, you and I, I think, are, are creatures of the Enlightenment. Definitely. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, as opposed to the now approaching endarkenment. <laughs> are on the horizon. Well, well, the, the assumption that we have when we're talking to people is that we value facts, we value logic, we value rationality, we value reason, we value outcomes. But uh, th- there's another view which a lot of people don't actually operate that way. They're, they're, the way they think is, is different. I'm not sure I'm being a little bit simplistic but i want to quote to you a few lines out of a really good article which i highly recommend to you from yesterday's canberra times and i put a link up to it on our twitter feed go to our twitter feed um, fuzzy logic science and uh he's this the guy's name is desmond manderson and he's based at the anu here in canberra and he says you hit your thumb with a hammer and you cry out you're not trying to communicate an idea or speak to anyone you're expressing yourself, releasing an inner need. So, bang, ow, 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 that hurts. And then he says, and there was a problem with the Trump versus Clinton was a battle between the id and the superego. And fight like that, you would never, would you ever bet against the id? Now, he's coming to a bit of a Freudian terminology there. But he says the uh, the nothing but the immediate and irrational fulfilment of pleasure can satisfy the id. So the id is sort of the primal part of ourselves. Which is exactly what comes out when you bang your thumb. <laughs> which is what happens when you bang your thumb or vote for President Trump. Well, Donald Trump. One of the lines there was perfect, to, even to what we were just talking about. Here comes the segue, folks. Is um, It says there that politics is now being reduced to a story, to a fantasy. And... Um, in a way, that's kind of true, you know, like, uh, and the primitive side of us is just gut reactions, you know, you see a danger, I, you I get away this, from it. I feel this, I feel that. Yeah, whereas um, we like to try and think of ourselves as a higher being, 
and for that you need the tales that are being spun and the, the best way to to do that is you know tell an old tale and just modify it to what your new circumstances so um for the, the the republicans it's all about ronald reagan and they'll always harken back to the stories of ronald reagan and try and associate themselves with the ronald reagan because they think that's what the public wants to hear and so he's like this golden child like a zeus like creature on top of the mountaintop that they all kind of walk towards you know trying to turn their political ideas into some sort of figure of ronald reagan and mm, mm, you know and then mm. if you don't like ronald reagan it, it, you do the same thing but demonize him well earlier phil you used the term basil yeah and this is kind of like a, a, a an appeal to base human instincts and, and the 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 superego there's just to finish off the the freudian terminology superego is the highly rational part of the brain and the ego is the bit that sort of moderates between the two that's that's as i as i read it and it'd be easy to say like the republicans are the id and the democrats are the superego where they're trying to achieve higher goals where the republicans are reacting to what they see the fear around them mexicans taking our jobs you know uh, that's why we've got to build a wall it's a pretty simple it's, it's fable yeah. to, to, to fix a problem which is far more complex and may not actually be the issue anyway and, and it's not the first wall that's been built and didn't work <laughs> yeah. and, and didn't work as they say with assassination no assassin has ever achieved the goals they set out to make like yeah, what wall has ever kept people in or or stop them from getting over. Well, People find a way. Uh, Jurassic Park told us that. Life will always find a way. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are plenty of examples of walls. But what concerns us greatly here on, on Fuzzy Logic, and we should qualify that uh, the views we're expressing are entirely our own. Especially right now. <laughs> Especially right now because, uh, uh, well, we don't normally delve into politics, but Trump and, and the, the movement behind Trump is anti-science. It's anti-knowledge. It's because a fact to to this man means nothing, and and he will say one thing and he'll say a completely different thing the next day, and you could say, oh, he might say it's raining outside, and you'd have to go and check out the window because it's probably sunny, and well, on one hand, you know, people who are concerned about their jobs, I I feel a lot of sympathy for that, and and I'm greatly concerned about the excesses of globalization you know done enormous damage uh when when it's done to excess and so so the fears the fears are real but the trouble is the way to fix the problem isn't by being stupid or afraid you can be afraid, afraid but don't react to that fear don't make your decisions on the fear you know use that as the motivation perhaps to fixing a problem but yeah any 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 decision made in fear never is never for the best <laughs> that, that that's right and and, and you're you're a science communicator phil as, as i am and there's different emotions have different impact on people and we were talking about uh, aboriginal culture and their stories and those connections with emotions but the fear emotion is one that gets immediate attention you know, like here comes a car, and you meet, and you look up, and the fear response, the attention, the alertness, your eyes will dilate, your pupils dilate, and all your 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 blood will rush to the extremities. Yep, yep, yep. You get goosebumps, your hair stands on end because that's a primitive feature of making you look bigger. A lot of animals do that when they're afraid. They like cats; they arch their backs and make themselves look bigger. You suck in, your mouth opens wide, and you suck in a lot of oxygen because you're now oxygen oxygenating your blood so that if you need to fight or flight, you're ready to go. 
lots of primitive reactions in, you're, you're in just something that we're afraid of. Hyper alertness, you're, you're ready for election. And, and of course, it's all a short term response, isn't it? Yep. And so, you know, because the thing that's about to lunch you is just over there behind the rock. Well, it is a short-term uh, thing, except if you dwell on it. And that's, I think, the problem with modern politics at the moment is, you know, for instance, as we're seeing in America, they're dwelling on being afraid of mm. the government taking our guns. Well, the government's never coming to take your guns. It's not ever what anybody's talking about. They're just talking about reasonable laws to make sure that there's reasonable only reasonable people are getting guns and you know but because they just hype the the terror of you know government coming to take our guns government coming to take our guns it's now become a almost a a, a religion almost mm. is it also a media thing do, do you think perhaps because newspapers sell on the eye-catching story yeah and coming from paleontology we see that all the time um media can hype a thing you know in, for instance, in paleontology, they'll find a new carnivore and they'll always say, it's bigger than T-Rex, because everybody knows a T-Rex, and oh, it's bigger than T-Rex. And then you read the, the fine print and it says, yes, it was 40 feet long. And then that's the size of T-Rex. And then they'd find another one. Oh, it's even bigger than that one, 40 feet long. <laughs> so headlines sell papers. And so, you know, going back to politics, it's the exact same thing. Well, the, the other thing that uh, comes up with the, the, the Trump election is uh, climate science. And there's another article, and in fact, this is in the paper today, and, and the t title is Fears of Climate Science Cuts. And we have lots of eminent client scientists around Australia and internationally commenting here. And we've got, for example, Axel Timmerman from the University of Hawaii saying that uh, researchers feared, quote, brute force against climate science. Uh, it's like driving into a tunnel and switching off your headlights, not a wise thing to do. So... Um, that's going to be a, a really worrying development. If if they wind back climate science, then uh, you know we're we're really in trouble. We're already in trouble with the, with the climate. I was going to say it's not like we can throw the we throw the first stone because we did the exact same things. We voted the new Liberal government in, and what's the first thing that they tried to modify? And it was the climate change. Um, it, it, uh, it's a worry. Group, yeah. So, Phil, I just wanted your, your thoughts on, so if fear is a good way of getting somebody's attention, and there's no shortage of fear we can throw at people with climate science. You know, the, the, the possible outcomes are, are terrible. And, and I was up in Kakadu, and they said if the sea level rise one and a half metres, all of this country, this beautiful wetlands, will be inundated. Uh, you know, you name it, endless bad stories. So what's another way of, of communicating it that actually... It's more positive, gets attention, but somehow brings us to action. Well, one thing, you know, that we've always got on our side is, like, in the darkness, light will always extinguish darkness, and that's why it's called enlightenment. The more we learn, the more we read, the more information we have, the more, more, more responsibility we take on ourselves to learn about something, the, more, the better we're going to understand that thing and fear disappears. Like, you know, the more you look into a, a situation or a problem... The more you will know, and the more you know, the less you're going to be afraid of something that you so, don't know because you so don't know. So, is anymore. that about making people feel that they're empowered, that they have the ability to do something? Is that sort of part of that? Absolutely. And kind of segueing into the zombie thing, um, I worked at the Smithsonian for three years, and while I was there, um, there was, uh, you know, the Smithsonian has a lot of students, and I was there during the last Obama election, and almost to a person, every one of those students were complaining that they didn't really know who to vote for. They weren't going to bother voting because it's not compulsory. And 
but they just weren't that interested in finding out. And just disengaged. No, yeah, and they, one of the things they were saying is that because nobody was presenting the information in a way they would understand. And I was just dumbfounded by that because I'm like, you're scientists or you're wanting to be science and you're in an in a industry that is constantly being having its budget slashed, constantly under attack by right-wing extremists, politicians and society. You, you're not allowed to stand and sit at the adult table if you're going to not vote. You know, this is, a, did, this is did, your responsibility. Did you get a sense from them where that disengagement came from? Yeah, uh, maybe a, to a certain point it might be self-entitlement, like they feel like they're owed the answer. They didn't, couldn't be bothered trying to find out the answer for themselves. They didn't do any effort to go look at who was, what the voting was about, who was being elected, what did they stand for. They just weren't interested, like they were expecting to be presented okay. all this information. I, I sometimes wonder whether in, in modern civilization, uh, we are like entitled, spoiled brat millionaire kids and you know everything just comes so easily you know we've got the all the gadgets and the the, the material well-being that's all just sort of laid on for us um you can almost it, tie that into mythology so in australia the mythology is the great australian dream own your own house and in america this is one of the big problems is they keep voting for things they're never going to achieve and they never want to tax the highest income bracket because every american thinks one day they will be in that high top income bracket and those taxes will will attack them and they don't want their fortune their future fortunes taxed and so this mythology that they're all going to end up rich means that whenever they try and tax the rich to pay for poor for things for the poorest people in society Americans don't see themselves as that. They always think they're just on the verge of becoming the rich. This is a really rich theme. Um, no, no, no play on the words intended there, Phil. Um, well, Desmond Manderson, who, whose story I was quoting a moment ago, is from the ANU, and I really love his article. I highly recommend it. Um, maybe, Phil, we should drag him on to fuzzy logic, and uh, I think he would be a really interesting guy to talk to. Um, one other thread to this is the um, not not really science so much, but uh, the self help movement. And you, you mentioned the word entitlement, right? So the Australian um, demographic researcher Hugh Mackay, who I think is just a living legend, and I'll, uh, everything he says is fascinating. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I'm uh, not sure who he is. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, he talked about people feeling powerless in the face of overwhelming change. So. Um, and the story I like to tell is, you know, the, have you seen the movie um, Downfall with Hitler, The Last Days of the Bunker? Yep, yep. And the, that last scene, it's been mocked terribly on YouTube, but uh, it, it's quite a harrowing scene because th these guys, they're screwed. They are really screwed. The, 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 the Soviets come from the east, the Allies are coming from the west, and they're in their bunker. So what do they do? They partied. They had a party, right? And so Hugh Mackay talks about people feeling overwhelmed in the face of these daunting problems, so they retreat to a backyard blitz. I can't fix the world, but I can fix my backyard. So I'll do, a bl I'll do the blitz. Yeah, and, you know, um, you can even see that on TV today. It's all about, you know, fixing your own little backyard, your own help. You know, um, we're not learning so much more anymore about the big issues you know, very important topics, especially in science, drop away very quickly. And an example of that is ozone layer. 
when's, when's the last time you heard anybody say anything about the ozone layer? It's not like it's not a problem anymore. It's not an issue, but it's just that was last decade's issue. Now we're on to but, but other it, problems. I guess it's all more negative stories and so on. Uh, and you can only take so many, and then yeah, you've just got to look to the positive. So um, we, we all do it. I mean, I'll, I'll sit down and play... You know, just do the puzzles in the paper, read the comics, or watch some movie. Oh, I'm going to go and watch Arrival after the show, which apparently is good. Yeah, I've heard good things about it. Uh, but on a positive story, now I've uh, written a couple of columns for the Australian Wildlife Conservancy on the theme of cats. Uh, I was sure we could have a good conversation about cats, but we're running out of time, yeah, Phil. That's, that's a whole episode. <laughs> uh, it's a whole episode. Now, cats are devastating, are devastating the, uh, right across Australia. And uh, what I learned from doing this research is that they arrived with the first fleet. Uh, Matthew Flinders had a cat called Trim, and, and it got his attention because it crawled up a rope after falling overboard. Oh, so it saved itself. Yeah, it saved itself. And then uh, the ship sunk, another ship sunk, and then it ended up uh, on the Mauritius with Flinders. Uh, has been imprisoned by the French, as you as you know. Yep, yep. Yep, yep. And uh, Trim was with him. Then Trim disappeared, and uh, Flinders thought that someone had lunched him. But uh, anyway, cats, cats causing vast, vast amounts of damage, and there's something in the order of 10 million of them across the country, and one cat will eat seven might eat seven animals on a single night. Well, the problem is a lot of cats, because that's what they do. They hunt. They, you know, a lot, a lot of people will tell stories about being presented with a headless mouse or something in the morning. They're not even eating the things they kill. They're just killing because that's yeah, what cats do. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's right. And that that's called the surplus killers. And so all of the small native mammals, you know, the the marler and I, and um, I can't off the top of my head, but 24 animals they are directly implicated in the extinction of over 120 severely threatened because of cats. But you can do things about it. And what the uh, Australian Wildlife Conservancy research is, is showing that the fire burning the regime across the, uh, the north of Australia uh, makes a huge difference. So you cut down the wildfires and you give the animals somewhere to hide. Even going back to the theme of, you know, big problem, little problem. There is a little solution to this. Don't let your cat out at night. Uh, that's, <laughs> Keep that's, it inside. <laughs> well, that's right. We can all play a small part, a small part in this. And uh, in today's Ask Fuzzy Column, so you'll find that one there. And I tell the story of a cat I saw on my front lawn and, and it was quivering. and It was looking up at the tree at something. And the next moment, sprung, and it was about a metre and a half in the air. I was amazed. And then it dropped back to the ground with a little tuft of feathers poking out of its mouth, and it trotted off with a, I think it was a silver eye or something like that. Yeah, no, they're, they're, the cats are cats. They're like one of the most perfect killing machines on the planet. And, and they have adapted fantastically well to the Australian country. We're running out of time. A couple of weeks' time, we've got uh, uh, fly experts really looking forward to that. That'll be interesting to, to listen to. <laughs> the the much maligned fly, they actually do port stuff. And can I just get in? If you're really interested in the in mythology of fossils at the National Dinosaur Museum, we actually have a new audio tour where you can go around and actually listen to all, look at the fossil and then hear the, the mythological story based on those fossils. So, yeah, that's something you can do. At the National Dinosaur Museum? At the Dinosaur Museum. Had oh, to plug that one in. <laughs> um, oh, definitely. Please do. Uh, at 